0: Have them come back too. It's great. Um, And boy, you know, it's such a beautiful day and it's so nice and warm. But I was thinking, you know, again, I feel bad you don't get to see me like First Service did in my nice new gray shirt, but just be thankful you're not a third service person who has to see me with no shirt on. (laughs) Count your blessings. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we continue in this study through the book of 1 Corinthians. I was gone the last couple weeks, but last time I was here, we made it through verse 7. And I had been struggling with, even over our vacation, how much to, how to break this passage up because I've, we've spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 13 because I think it's one of the most important chapters in the Bible, and I haven't wanted to rush through it, but this last section really belongs as a unit, and so I finally came to the conclusion uh, and the resolution really that I need to cover verses 8 through verse 13 um, all in one chunk, which also means uh, that I'll probably bust the time limit and go over time, but, you know, that's okay. You'll deal with it. Um, <laughs> But it's a great summary. You know, Paul had been talking here, well, earlier in chapter 12, he was emphasizing the body of Christ, the fact that we are all different, we have differences and different gifts, but we're made to fit together, to cooperate with each other. And spiritual gifts are what God gives us, those capacities to be unique, it's what God gives us to make us need each other and to help us each to have a place and to fit together. But in the middle of talking about all that, and before he gets to chapter 14, which we'll start to look at next week, um, he plops this section on love. Because when you're talking about spiritual gifts, you're talking about people are different from each other. And when we're talking about being different from each other, we are inevitably talking about something that becomes a a source of confrontation and clashing because I don't understand you because you're not like me. And so it's so important that he jumps into in the middle of this discussion, 1 Corinthians 13 to go, but wait a minute. While we're talking about your differences, while we're talking about your gifts and abilities, let me say this, love is way more important than all of that. And you can serve your brains out. You can burn yourself out. You can, you can do whatever it is that you do. And if you don't do it with love, it's not going to matter. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you do. Without love, it doesn't matter. And that's what this chapter is about. And so after talking about how important it is, then he goes through kind of a discussion of love where he talks about that it isn't selfish. It, it doesn't, it's not about me, When it's love, it's not about me. When it's love, it's not about my pride, me being puffed up. You know, in so many ways, knowledge and and skill can cause me to think I'm better than someone who doesn't have the same knowledge or the same skill. And so in saying how important it is, he also says you can recognize right away when you're losing it because you become divided as the Corinthian church was. You become more worried about yourself than you are about others. And when that love starts to go, when you can't see the love, then everything else, all of the competence in the world doesn't matter. And then the last time we were together, we looked at verse 7 where he kind of sums up about love, it, it bears all things or protects and covers all things. It believes all things. It has faith. It's dependable. It hopes all things. It's optimistic. It it can't wait for the future. It knows good things are coming, and it endures all things. You can count on it. It's always going to be there. Real love will be demonstrated or the lack thereof will be demonstrated based on endurance, based on whether or not it hangs in there and stays. Your real friends, the ones who really love you are the ones who stand by you and so on. And so then he kind of sums it all up here in verse 8 as he says, love never fails. It doesn't fail. The word there means it doesn't fall. It doesn't ever run to the point where it's cut off. It falls apart. It doesn't, okay, you've pushed my love to its limits. Love doesn't do that because it endures. It lasts. It's faithful in all, in all of these things. So, and then he says, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. The gifts are temporary, in other words. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect or mature has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three; but the greatest of these is love. Now, in this passage, and you've read it on wedding invitations and, you know, we it's something that's very commonly you know, put on wall hangings and things like that. But before we really dive into it, I need to do a little bit of house cleaning here, just interpretation-wise, um, because it's really not the best translation. I Normally, the the New King James is translation that I really enjoy and prefer, and I use it. No translation's perfect. But in this case, there are some things that I think, become clearer if you understand what they actually say in the original just a little bit. So I'm going to try not to bore you with this, but just really quickly, I want to point something out. Ordinarily, in in our English Bible, when it uses the same word next to each other, you would assume it's the same word that was used originally in Greek. But in this case, the same word is used right next to each other, but they're two different words. And then you also assume that when there are different words used next to each other, they must be different words in the Greek. But in this case, there's a case where a word is translated four different ways, but it's the same word in the in the Greek. So, got me? Are you with me so far? Okay. Here's the deal. Okay, verse eight. Love never fails. That's a word that means to fall, to come short. The way that we would use the word fail. So. That's one word. But then it turns around and says that prophecies will fail. It's a different word for fail. The word here when it comes to prophecy is a word that means that something causes it to be put on the shelf. Something causes it to be brought to a conclusion. And that's an important concept here and it's used throughout this passage, okay? Now, when it says that whether there are tongues, they will cease. That's a different word. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But whether there's knowledge, it will vanish away like a magician makes it disappear. Sounds really cool in the English. And the New King James copied that from the Old King James. But but it's the same word for be put on the shelf. It's the exact same word as uh, that's used where it says prophecy will fail. So Prophecy and knowledge both are going to be hung on the shelf. They're going to be um, put in a position where they're not necessary anymore. Now, in verse 10, when it says that when the perfect comes, that which is in part will be done away, same word, katargeo, put on the shelf. Now, then when it says that when I was a child, verse 11, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Same word, catargeo. Now, in the case of kids' toys, as they outgrow them and you box them up and put them on the shelf, that's a good sense of what this word means. And that's what it means in each of the cases, really. So even though our Bibles use the word fail for it. It uses the word vanish away for it. It uses the word be done away, and it uses the word be put away. It's all the same word. Are you with me? Okay, now, in the case of tongues, the emphasis here is the same. Spiritual gifts are temporary, but love is permanent. (coughs) But a different word for Tongue ceasing is used, and it's caused a lot of misunderstanding with people. Now, I'm not going to get into an extensive discussion on the gift of tongues, because when we come to chapter 14 next week, we will do that more. So if you're, you know, wigging out over tongues, or if you're it's your big thing, don't, we'll deal with it next week, okay? But it is interesting that a different word was used. And it, it's not only a different word, but in the greek there's a there's an active voice a passive voice and a middle voice an active voice means i am doing it i hit the ball i'm the one who's doing the action a passive voice is the action is happening to me the ball hit me or ann hit me and that's in that case i'm passive ann is active there's also The middle voice, which is something that we don't have an equivalent in English so much, although we would say, like for instance, I hit myself with the ball, the Greek would handle that as the middle voice. It's an action that you are doing or you are intimately involved in the action, but you're also the recipient of the action. Like when I wash my hands, I'm washing, but my hands are also being washed. That's the idea of the middle voice. Does that make some sort of sense? Just nod your heads. Okay. Now, in the case of the verb for cease, it's used in the middle voice. Um, How do you explain that? Well, there are a lot of people who have made a big case for it to say that that means that tongues just died out on their own after a period of time. They weren't needed anymore. And so there are people who teach that and make a big thing out of the middle voice as a result of it. The whole point of the passage is there's a time when these gifts aren't going to be necessary. I believe that all the gifts are, are active today, but I do think that their application can sometimes change. My personal opinion on this, in this case with the gift of tongues is that even early on in the church, they evolved in, in a sense where the the use of tongues, the need for it, became different, and therefore it took on a little different role. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, they spoke in tongues. In that case, it was so that they could presumably communicate in languages that the people who were hearing wouldn't understand. And so it was primarily a miracle of communication. Now over time as people settle into communities and, of course, more and more as Greek became a language that everyone understood, you really didn't necessarily need that. And today, we translate languages and things like that. And so, even in their cases, it would seem that early on, when you see this use of the gift of tongues, later on, tongues develop more, and as we will see in chapter 14, as being something that was more involved with communication with God, praising God. It was more, instead of being done in a group of people, it was something that was done individually. Paul said, I speak in tongues more than you all. But in the church, you're not going to hear me doing it. People would think I'm nuts. And so, you know, we see the use of it develop. Now, it's true that over church history, the gift of tongues, which was a major thing that was going on here in the 1st century in Corinth through church history you see instances of of tongues being alluded to throughout history but for the most part it became a much less prominent thing perhaps partly because Paul seems to say well prophecy's way better preaching's way better but Perhaps also because tongues is a gift that easily becomes misused and it freaks people out and leads to misunderstanding and so people had a tendency to just give up on it and quit the use of it and then you have periods of time such as over the last you know 100 years or so where now there are a lot more people speaking in tongues than there were 300 years ago and some of them take it to the same kind of extremes that Paul warns against Others have found that tongues is a, is a personal thing between them and the Lord in their communication with the Lord. I won't divide over it. I don't want to, you know, it's, we're going to deal with it next week as we go through chapter 14. But at any rate, that probably the way in which it just kind of frittered away a bit and would come and go and changed in its application is probably why he said in the case of tongues in the same way that we don't need prophecy and knowledge in heaven you're not going to need tongues in heaven but it will cease but it's in the process of kind of doing that anyway now there are people who teach that certain spiritual gifts ceased at the end of the first century and they are called cessationists People believe, many um, Baptists are cessationists, a lot of other independent fundamental churches are. Frankly, there are a lot of guys, even though Calvary Chapel teaches that all gifts are for today, there are a whole bunch of people in Calvary Chapels who are basically cessationists. And some of them have used this verse to defend their position. Some of them have also used the, the fact that he says, well, when the perfect is done, then the partial will be done away with. The perfect was the completion of the canon of Scripture. Once they had the whole Bible, they didn't need those gifts anymore. That's, what, that's the teaching of people. like I imagine, I know John MacArthur used to teach this. Jay Vernon McGee would teach it. It basically popped up in the 50s and 60s as a reaction to the excesses in the Pentecostal movement. Um, Personally, I have a problem with that because, for one thing, as you read the passage, it's really obvious the perfect is not the canon of Scripture because we, st- we still need knowledge and prophecy as well as all the other gifts. And so um, the perfect is none other than Jesus Christ Christ. Himself, And today there isn't a serious debate on that point among theologians that, you know, they tried to make up this idea of the completion of the canon to explain away the charismaniacs. But, but really, the perfect, I mean, come on, he says, when it's perfect, I'll know even as I am known. Is that the way your life is today? You know, that, and so clearly what we have here from a theological standpoint is Paul's making the case the gifts are not always going to be needed. When Jesus returns and we are in heaven and we are made perfect, we are made mature and complete, then these gifts which are designed to help us along the way until we get to that point won't be necessary anymore, but love will be. And so his point in the passage is love is the one thing that you do today that you're always going to do. Love is a way in which God's presence, because God is love, love is a way in which as we relate to each other in love, we're connecting to heaven. We are connecting to that which is eternal. It's the closest thing that we get to heaven when we love someone today. And so that's something that you can't, especially over gifts, To end up losing your love over arguing about gifts is the most ridiculous thing going because the gifts are only worth something, as he has said, if they're infused with love. And love will last longer than the gifts. Now, you have your gifts. God has given each of us special abilities to function in the body. And it's important for us to discover who God has made us, to learn what it is He wants to do in our lives and how He wants to use us. Vitally important down here in this life. And so He spent the whole chapter 12 talking about that. We need each other. But if we take our gifts, we need to realize, you know what? In heaven, those gifts aren't going to be needed. I I love teaching the Bible I love getting up and explaining the truths of God to the Bible and and all of the years of study and everything that I've put in in order to at least grasp as much as I grasp helps me to do what I do best here on this earth. But you know what? In heaven, nobody's going to be going, "Uh, Dave, got a question about Calvinism or (laughs) got a question about prophecy. or got All of a sudden, everything I worked for, the only thing that's going to last of that is if I love people. Love them enough that they are drawn to Jesus Christ so they can go to heaven with us. I won't be preaching sermons in heaven. You know, and you won't be doing what you do now in heaven. But the one thing that we will be doing in heaven, we'll be doing all sorts of things, but he doesn't tell us what it is. But the one thing that we will still do and be is love, only in a more perfect and complete way. In heaven, we'll all get along. We'll get along with people at the church down the street. We'll get along with people who disagree with us on a lot of things where we can't get along with them now. If we're in heaven, as shocked as we are that they make it, (laughs) we're going to love them finally. It'd be better if we learned to love them now, but we will love them then. And so that's kind of what Paul is talking about here. Now, there's another phrase in this passage that I want you to notice because it too is central to what he is saying And it's the little phrase, in part. Notice that he says, verse 9, which is, I think, for anyone who's interested in theology, verse 9 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. For now we know in part. We prophesy in part. In verse 10, when the perfect has come, that which is in part will be put on the shelf. And he goes on down and says in verse 12, now I know in part. I think he wants us to get the point of that. The word part means that you're a piece of something. It means that you are designed like a piece of a puzzle and you're only a small part of it but you're designed to fit with others in order to develop a complete picture of things. In order to really reflect the totality of That which God is, really, and that which he wants people to see. But being apart, which means that by its very definition, you're excluded from others. You're different than others. You are distinct. That causes most of the problems that we have. And so in chapter 12, as Paul is talking about, we're all members, but the I can't say You know, to the foot, I don't need you. We're all a part of something bigger than we are. But it's important for us to understand that, but to not allow that in part to rob us of the unity that God wants us to have and especially of the love that He wants us to communicate. The word part, again, it means you're a piece of something, but by definition, when you're part you can also be a part, stick an A in front of it. And all of a sudden now, it, it, if you say, hey, you're a part. But if I say, I feel like I'm a part. See, my differences can cause me to become isolated from everyone else because you're not like me. You don't understand me, and I don't understand you. And as a result, there can be that isolation where I go, I'm going to take my part and go home. I'm going to just be who I am in isolation from everyone else. And therein lies the problem with life, the problem that Paul is dealing with in this whole book of 1 Corinthians. He he wants us to be a part, but he doesn't want us to be apart from everyone else to be independent. And love is what can allow someone who is apart to not be apart from everyone else. In other words, it can cause us to be unified. We talk about political parties. We talk about partisan politics. We talk about participating. It all means that you're apart. And by their definitions, they tend to be sort of exclusive. Even something as happy as, we're going to have a party. What makes a party a party is everyone can't come. We pick certain people and say, you're invited. From when you're a little kid, the concept of party, when somebody had a birthday party and you felt like, I wasn't invited, I feel left out. I feel left apart from everyone else. I can't. But Paul has been emphasizing here, you don't have to be everyone. But you fit, and there's a place for you. And right now, you're a part of things. We are joyfully in the process of planning my older son, William's wedding. William and Brittany got engaged just before we went on, well, at Easter, they got engaged, which is really exciting. But now we're down to the tough part, where you're planning the wedding, because we know so many people. And see, the problem is, it's not like that Will and Brittany have that many friends. But it's that our par- her, their parents have friends. And we have a church with a lot of people. And we're like, on the one hand, Brittany as a bride has always had dreams of what her ideal wedding and, and reception is going to be. Now, <coughs> guys never fantasize about those things. <laughs> Guys never think, you know, from when I was three years old, I was just dreaming of being introduced as Mr. and Mrs. and of, of greeting all these people that I don't know and opening up 20 crock pots and do, you know. <laughs> Guys don't think like that, but girls do, and the weddings for the girls. And so they're going through making a list, and and then also they're going through, we've got to find a place to do this. And they have certain, not they, she, has certain <laughs> has certain ideas in terms of, ooh, I'd like to be outdoors and romantic and elegant and all. And it's like, how many places do you find like that? And you start calling these places, and it's just, and then you're going, oh, no. How, each person is going to cost X amount of dollars, and... <laughs> What are, you know, and as much as you try to go, hey, look, invite more people, it's more presence. you'll break even, and, you know, but (laughs) guys are more practical, but you realize right away, you know, if we can only have so many people, and we don't even know where we're going to do it, we don't know how big it's going to be, there are some people who are going to get their feelings hurt. There are some people who are going to feel like, oh, I thought I was close enough to be. Just like when you pick groomsmen and, and bridesmaids. You, you can end up with 20 of them because you don't want to hurt anybody. But the, the nature of a party is, sorry, everyone can't always be there. But when we allow that to become a childish thing, where now it's like, now again, for, for most adults, at least for most men, if you say, you know, I didn't get invited to their reception. woo <laughs> you know? But So I'm starting to think, maybe we do a reception with just women. The guys go to a baseball, I mean, September, you're getting in the pennant stretch. And, but trying to work through all this stuff, I'm realizing something about growing up and something about being a part. And that is, you know, sometimes this is just the way life is and it's okay. And you just have to do what you're going to do. And if somebody's, you know, feels like, oh, I should be included or, you know, hey, not, I'm just checking myself out of the process. If it was up to me, we'd invite everyone I know. But I don't I don't want to pay for everyone I know. So, <laughs> but... Here, Paul is going through this discussion about, in part, and he's saying, grow up. He said, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, look at that in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought, and reasoned as a child. I whined as a child. But when I became a man, I put away, I put on the shelf childish things. When you're a parent and your kids are getting older, you start to realize the heaviness of that. For us, recognizing, you know, that, uh, you know, I didn't think it would ever happen that my, my little boy would all of a sudden care more about a girl and now doesn't really care about Xbox 360 anymore. And I'm like, what happened? But now, He's going to get married, and they don't want to live with us. And, and, my, and my younger son, Danny, is looking into colleges to go away to, and the two of them went up to Montana this weekend, and they're still up there to look into a school in Montana. So we're looking at big-time empty nest, put away the toys. And a part of us is like, oh, man, empty nest. But a part of us is like, well, our whole life is going to change. But this is what we raise kids for so that we can let go of them and let them find their own way and show up. There's nothing more tragic than somebody who never does do that, who never does grow up, who never does move out. And so Paul is saying, for all of us, there's a time to grow up and that growing up is connected with love. You know, if your kids didn't fall in love, they'd probably never move out if you, if you make life easy enough for them. But when they, when they fall in love, they want to move out. They want to go out and start their own life and do their own thing. And, and that's as it should be. But, and then you pack up the toys and save them for grandkids. You know, and and I don't know years from now, are grandkids gonna care about an Xbox 360? They'll have toys of their own that are so much better than that, but but put the toys away. Quit being like a kid. Those that era is over. And and love is what allows us to grow up. And so Paul is saying, you guys, you're you're part, you're individuals. I made you that way. You are unique. But grow up and understand that love is more important than your gifts, than your individual perspectives. Grow up and get along with each other. Grow up and love each other. It's sad sometimes when parents and kids are estranged. But usually no matter how who messed up and caused it, eventually if you just calm down and be loving, kids will come around and then they'll end up wanting to have something to do with you. Sometimes not, but generally they will. Because growing up causes you to recognize, I want connection. I want to accept people who are different than I am. I realize the beauty and the possibility of love happening, a love connection that happens when two who are different Put those differences aside long enough to care about each other and realize that we can each be a part and sometimes there's a place for those parts to fit. Now, for me, I think that verse 9 is one of the most important verses in the Bible because it says that beautiful truth, we know in part. That's threatening to a lot of people. To say, I don't know everything. And some people are so consumed with what they do know that they hang on to it and it causes them to feel like they're against everyone who knows something differently than they do. Now, truth is not up for grabs, really. It's not, it's not that there's no concept of truth. There is absolute truth. But the problem is I only know a part of it, and so do you. you now, there are some things that the Bible teaches so clearly that I can't even entertain the possibility that there's another perspective that might be correct. For instance, the Bible hammers throughout Old and New Testament that Jesus Christ is God. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He says it in every way possible from the word was God to Isaiah 9. He's called the mighty God to to Titus to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to Thomas bowing down before Jesus and saying, my Lord and my God, Jesus saying, if you don't believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Before Abraham was, I am. Well, okay. I think we can know Jesus is God. There are other things that the Bible talks about that good dedicated Christians disagree on. And these are the issues that we tend to gravitate toward often and divide over. See, I am absolutely convinced as I read the scripture, for instance, that there is going to come a day when people don't expect it and Christians are going to get raptured into heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about it, 1 Corinthians 15 and others. I believe with all my heart that that day happens before a time of seven years of tribulation, followed by a second coming of Christ, followed by a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. That makes me a premillennial, dispensational, pre-tribulation rapturist. That's my position. Now, I'm convinced of it, but I have some friends who love God as much as I do, who are dedicated men of God, some who have accomplished more for God than I ever will, and some of them read the same Scriptures, and they believe that the rapture actually comes in the middle of the tribulation sometimes, or pre-wrath, before the worst part of the tribulation. Others believe that the rapture comes at the end of the tribulation, what I call the ricochet rapture, where you get raptured and you come right back down. It seems silly to me, but... Post-tribulationists, that's what they believe. There are other dedicated Christians who don't believe in a rapture at all. They think that's symbolic and, and we're actually in the millennium and it's not actually a thousand years. and it's not. What do I do with that? If I go, listen, my way is the right way, and if you disagree with me, you're, just, you're not just different. You're wrong. And you have a right to be wrong, but you know what? I don't want to talk about it with you or with anybody else. And I become hostile. I become like a little kid who, who can't get along with his friends because they like a different team or something. And I have my little party of pre-tribulationists. Well, first thing that goes is love. After that, humility. The ability, ability to see the advantages and strengths in the positions of others. Connection, it can't happen. Partisan spirit is what results. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Hal Lindsey, you know? And it's like, this is what he's talking about, and he's saying, grow up, you know in part. As long as that's true, I better be really careful about what I am absolutely dogmatic on. And believe me, there are some things that I can be absolutely dogmatic on, that every God-fearing, Bible-believing Christian agrees on. And I start with, with Scripture being the, the Word of God, being God-breathed. I, you know, now we start there, there's a lot of freedom and openness. Now, I know other people who are of a theological position that's called the Reformed position or often referred to as Calvinism. They believe in five points of Calvinism. they love to argue about it. Some of them do. And some people who aren't Calvinists love to argue about that. You know, I'm not, I've read tons of Calvinist material. I'm not convinced of Calvinism. I had another guy this week with an email exchange who thought he needed to convince me that Jesus didn't die for everyone. He only died for the elect. He heard one of my messages on the radio and was taking issue with me. And I spent more time than I should have probably interacting with him. But, you know, I know in part. And so I'm not going to... There are people in our church who I know are five-point Calvinists. I'm not going to fight with you about it. I'm not going to say, oh, you're not a part of the body of Christ. I'm not going to divide over something like that. Because really good people, some of the most godly people in history, some of the most godly people today are people who are Calvinists. Now, I look at someone who's a Calvinist like a, you know... um, You know, great preachers like Charles Spurgeon and people like that, and I just go, what was he thinking when it came to some of these things? Or John MacArthur or someone like that. But you know, then I look at other people who are, and you know what? I realize none of us knows the whole truth. Now, when we get to heaven, there's one thing I'm sure of. There aren't gonna be any Calvinists in heaven. Now be careful, don't (laughs) don't get worked up. Or Arminians or Calminians or Calvary Chapel people or Baptists or Methodists. When we go to heaven, every distinction that we made down here melts away completely when all of a sudden now I don't need knowledge. Now I know even as I am known. When I see Jesus, none of that stuff's going to matter anymore. And on this earth, when we grow up, is when we get past fighting over that which we know in part. We should hold our position. We should be able to discuss with people who disagree with us as long as all of us realize that we all know in part. As soon as you think you know better than I do, now we've got to fight because I know. Okay, I do know in part, and I know a much bigger part than you do. <laughs> and see, that's how we look at it. And that's what Paul is getting at. You know what? Let's all accept the fact that right now we're all just a part. We know in part. And all of that childish sort of division, that party spirit, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Calvin, whatever, I am of Chuck Smith or whoever you're of or Dave Rolfe, Put it away, grow up, get over that, and just get to the point where you're a Jesus person. Get to the point where you just, hey, I don't know everything, but I know that he loves me, and I know that this is God's word, and I love to study it, and I want to grow in it. How do you know if you're growing? Oh, I know a lot more stuff. That's not how you know if you grow. You know that you're growing when your love is increasing. You know that you're growing when now you are able to fit with other parts, that you're accepting of people who are different than you are. When In humility, when you realize how much you don't know, now you're starting to grow up and you're going, okay, it's time to put the toys away. It's time to set it aside. I've said before, I I enjoy reading things that are written by people who disagree with me. It helps sometimes for me to hone my skills, but I like to try to understand why they are who they are. And on our vacation I did you know, caught up on some reading and I read several interesting books. One of them is a book called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. He's the most well-known atheist of today. He's an Oxford professor and and uh, he's a smart guy. And I read his book and and It struck me, and he made some great points, but there are some other things that were just ridiculous, but it struck me about Richard Dawkins. He doesn't just not believe in God. He hates God. He's hostile, And, and the thing that bugs him the most is that most people don't agree with him. And here's this Oxford genius who can't figure out why he's not smart enough to make other people not believe in a God. And I look at Dawkins and go, "How can you, as a biologist, look at the the brilliance of genetics and 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 the development of life and how life could come out of nothing?" Dawkins, how could you miss the obvious that there's an intelligence going on here? but you know what I see in him is a stomping his foot he's he's not just against God, but he's completely threatened by anyone who believes in God. He wants to remove any discussion of God out of science. And I saw his perspective just before my vacation. I watched a a movie that's going to be released and coming out, I think this week. It's called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. Ben Stein, the economist and writer and comedian, um, you remember him as Ferris Bueller's teacher. Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? But he interviews people because, and he's not a Christian, he's Jewish, but, but he's discovered how in the world of science, anyone who talks about intelligent design, the idea that there's some plan involved, that they're immediately pushed out of academia, their jobs are lost, their material can't be published, if you just use the word intelligent design, it's like you've said something that threatens all of existence. It's a powerful movie, and I would encourage you to go out and and to see it when it comes out. Um, But in that movie, he interviews Richard Dawkins, the guy that wrote The God Delusion, and it was interesting because Richard Dawkins, who talks about, oh, just open to anything in science, Ben Stein is talking to him about come on then, why can't you be just open to entertaining the possibility that there's an intelligence? And oh, he just started getting mad at Ben Stein. It's hard to get mad at Ben Stein. And and then Ben was talking to him, and he he goes, Dr. Dawkins, he said, what if you studied biology enough that you came to the conclusion that no matter how old the universe is, that natural selection could have never created life out of non-life. He said, what if you just went back and you just go, whoa, this couldn't have happened. And he said, couldn't intelligent design be a possibility? He said, no. He said, if I came to that conclusion, I would have to conclude that some higher form of life that had evolved longer in another universe somewhere else had then come and planted life on this planet... With the plan and programmed it that way, and then it happened. And so Ben Stein said, So, you think that maybe there's some higher life form who had a plan and programmed life to happen here on this earth? Isn't that intelligent design? (laughs) and Dawkins is breaking out in a sweat and he's oh, so angry and he's suing Ben Stein now to get him to not release this footage but it was you almost expect him to stomp his foot and i felt like going Dawkins you're brilliant and i appreciate your gift and you have a lot to offer but grow up let it be okay that you don't know everything let it be okay that you don't have the answers the, one, the person that, that Dawkins hates more than Christians is agnostics. He lashes out at them in the God delusion because he really hates it when somebody says, I don't know. He goes, you know, I've proven it. How could you hear my arguments and not know? Grow up, Dawkins. After I read his book, I also read a, a new book that's out by a man named Anthony Flew. Now, Dawkins is the favorite atheist of our time. He and there are several others, Dennett and and Sam Harris and some others who have popularized atheism. But Anthony Flew was the guy who did that in the 40s, 50s, 60s, another Oxford professor. And Flew has written tons of books on atheism and why there's no God. He's the one who was a significant, he's a philosophy professor, and he's the one who was a significant influence on these other guys, the precursor to who they are. Well, something weird happened a few years ago to Anthony Flew. He's over 80 years old, and it hit him one day. This can't make sense. Life, this piece of wood cannot turn into something living Ever. And our consciousness, our our awa- self-awareness and things like that, there has to be something more than just what evolved randomly from natural selection. Now, uh, Anthony Flew, to this point, hasn't become a Christian, but he has become a theist. And he wrote a book called There Is a God. Actually, the cover of it, if you see it in the stores, it says, there is not a God, and then he crossed out not. And... Anthony Flew goes through the book in a brilliant way, and and he reasons how he came to his conclusion basically by reason. And then interestingly, as an appendix to the book, he added an argument for Christianity that was written by Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, who's a brilliant Anglican um, bishop, and And Wright just does a beautiful job of explaining Christianity. And Flew says, I'm not a Christian. But he said, once you accept the fact that there's a God, if you read N.T. Wright's essay here, he said, you'll definitely have to admit that Christianity is the religion to beat. (laughs) And it was was amazing. But I go, can't these two guys get together? But in the God delusion, you know... um, Richard Dawkins just hates Anthony Flew and claims that, oh, he's just converted because he's senile or he's afraid of after death and whatever. And you read Flew and you go, no, this guy is not senile. This guy is incredibly brilliant you know, to this day. But not being able to accept someone who's different always leads to division and clashing. And there's no place for that within the body of Christ. And what Paul is saying here in calling us back to love, he's saying, when you grow up, you fall in love. When you grow up, you care about other people. You accept your own limitations. You recognize you don't know it all. You don't have it all. But to realize, boy, if we can take all of the pieces collectively that we have and put it together, the picture will start to develop. And beautiful things can come from that. And he said, that's why you can't let gifts trump love. Love needs to trump gifts. And now we see in a mirror dimly at best, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. He already said that faith and hope are a big part of love because love believes all things and hopes all things. But he says, okay, you've got, even when it comes to the virtues, faith, hope, love, the greatest of these is love. In other words, put love first. Don't let anything else crowd love out of the way. Don't let love rip off your arguments. Don't let love divide your families. Don't let love separate friends. Don't let love divide churches. When it's not existing, allow it to pull you together, to hold you together. But when we neglect love, then the result parties everywhere. A part here, a part here, a part there. When we love, the parts start to fit together. It comes together and we go, wow, this is, this is great. That's why, you know, I can read a book by an atheist and I don't get all worked up about it. In fact, I can learn some beneficial things. He makes some good points about things that Christians do that they shouldn't do. And I'm convicted. See, because even an, even an atheist has a part of the picture, The beauty of love is that it allows us to put all the parts together in a way that fit with the Spirit of God acting on us and drawing it all together. And so Paul says, before we get into this tongues thing, and again, tongues have divided a lot of people. You know, tongues freak people out and and they're nervous about it and other people are arrogant about it and whatever. But he goes, I'm going to give a good discussion of where it fits. But he said, before we even do that, I need to remind you, love is the deal. Love is the main thing. If you don't have love, nothing else matters. If you are not communicating love, being right at best, you're only partly right. You're also partly wrong. Love. Let's pray. Lord, you didn't just tell us to love. You are love. And you showed us love by sacrificing yourself for us. And we thank you for priming the pump in that way. But God, we repent because so many times in our partial knowledge, we have alienated others. In our personal perspectives, we've failed to acknowledge and accept and appreciate the differences that others have with us. And when love went down the drain, with it, every possibility of us living a life that's the way it's supposed to be. So God, help us to love. Help us to grow in that direction. We're heading to heaven where that's all there is. Help us to experience heaven on earth by accepting those who are different than we are, by getting along, by putting the toys away and growing up, by realizing that the party is for all of us. Lord, help us especially as people who have placed our faith and trust in you as Christians to search for a unity, to search for love to be manifest in everything that we do. We thank you for the fact that you paid the price for that to happen. And Lord, we even thank you that We only have a part because that makes us need others and it makes others need us. But keep us humble and keep us loving. Help us to grow up. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. I think something's wrong with that clock back there. Somebody might need to change it. It can't be this. They did it to my watch too. Oh, well, sometimes you just can't shut up. You're going, Dave, you said you know in part. It sounds like you're giving us the whole thing today. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. But I also want to mention, if there's anybody here who's never given their life to Jesus Christ, that's what love is all about. It's realizing that God loves you enough to send his son to die for you, to pay for your sins. He's given you the opportunity to to learn how to love now and to know that you'll spend an eternity living in a place of love. And if you'd like to get to know that kind of Savior, there'll be people down here in the front who would just love to pray with you and, and explain anything to you that you don't yet understand and to just help you.